welcome. Thank you for joining us. This is the episode on Tesla earnings per share. Today we have the absolute joy of having Bradford Ferguson with us. Thank you, Bradford, for joining us. And also we have a friend of ours from the trader community that you might all know. It's JPR007. Thank you both for joining us. Good to be here. All right. Let's do a quick introduction. We also have our regular crew with us. Guy, do you want to say hello? Hello, everybody. Glad to be here. What's going on? I think this will be a great episode. Can't wait to jump in. Hey, everyone. Welcome to our podcast. Super excited for today's episode. All right. Awesome. So let's get started. Just a little bit of background uh, on you, Bradford, because obviously a lot of people know you, but um, could you give us a little bit about your financial experience and what you've done in the financial markets? Yeah, so... Um, after college, I was a stock options trader at the Chicago Board of Options Exchange for over five years. And then I um, came down to Indiana and uh, work in a registered investment advisory. And I, I handle investments for the firm that I have for 16 years. And that's mainly what I do is work with individuals and families and help coach them through the ups and downs. But I also am choosing what we own for investments. Very, very cool. Awesome. So before we get started today on the financials, I'd like to make a disclaimer. Nothing we say here on stage today is financial advice in any way, shape or form. You need to do your own due diligence. And for the full disclaimer, please check out hffinancials.com backslash disclaimer. That's hffinancials.com backslash disclaimer. So nothing we say here is advice. Uh, you need to speak to your authorized financial advisor. And uh, yeah, we're just some happy people on the internet. So, you know, be careful. All right, let's get started. Bradford, uh, you had some interesting perspectives um, coming into this quarter. Would you like to tell us something on why you had some figures prior to this quarter that was deviating a bit from the markets in general? Yeah, so um, I've been following uh, JPR007 for some time, and, and he has this new uh, production tracker that he has a really cool graphic for, but basically when I'm looking at what Tesla might do for a given quarter, I'm looking at it more from the production side. Um, and I think Rob Maurer from Tesla daily does something similar and others, but like, if you look at Troy Tesla, like he's looking at registration data in Europe and registration data in like California and New York, that kind of thing. So I think what's interesting about, um, people that, that are drawn to Tesla's, we have creative minds. And so I, I try and look at it different ways. I, I know Warren Redlick has a, his battery model for looking at Tesla and different models. Mm. And I, I think it's just interesting to enhance our understanding, to look at things different ways. And I, I try and do it in a, in a simple way. Uh, JPR, um, maybe you could talk a little bit about your... Um, the little graphic you have for production and, you know, why we should look at produ production capacities. Sure. And thank you, Bradford. And uh, nice to, uh, to meet all of you today uh, with, with my voice, as opposed to simply with my, my tweets. Um, as some of you will have seen, I publish a, a quarterly capacity map uh, which basically takes the information that Tesla gives us about the capacity at their different locations and transforms that into uh, into a table where we can uh, apply how many uh, shift crews are working. We can calculate monthly and quarterly and annual rates of uh, production. And from that, uh, in, in a simple world, when a plant is running at full capacity, like uh, uh, say Fremont, um, we might expect it to make 500,000 cars a year and 125,000 a quarter on a pro rata basis. Um, but the world is not quite that simple. Uh, Fremont has been suffering from supply shortages, uh, particularly from my point of view, batteries, but also, of course, we've been hearing a lot about the, the chip shortages and other things like that. And then Shanghai uh, has, for the last two years, basically been in a ramp-up mode. So we have to judge each quarter how many shift crews they've got operating, how many lines. Last year, it was basically line one. 
uh, and they've got that. We can judge that with some degree of confidence. Um, and and then, of course, again, in Shanghai, we have to wonder whether there are overlays for uh, uh, supply chain shortages of batteries or, or chip components and other interruptions where they are going to upgrade a particular piece of equipment or whether they're going to be affected by Chinese holidays. If you look back at those capacity maps for the last uh, couple of quarters, uh, they've been pretty good at, uh, at uh, what we can expect out of Shanghai. Uh, but Fremont has, uh, has routinely been a supplied indicating that they've been suffering more from battery shortages or other restrictions. So I update those every quarter. I try to keep them updated during the quarter based on what we learn along the way and what we can deduce. Uh, of course, for big uh, shipment numbers, we see retail. Um, but those allow us to refine that mm -hmm. model. And by the end of a quarter, we have pretty close fix on what to expect. That's really what Bradford, I think, is referring to. And Bradford, uh, you, I hope, take that capacity map and use it in your own way. You apply your own judgment. Uh, I'm not trying to say that it's the right answer, but it's a framework for us to think about those things. Yeah, so I was I was looking at August, and we heard the rumor that, um, and this was from the drone pilot. So this is the guy; <laughs> he's watching the factory all the time. Um, you also have people, you know. I think there's people in China literally counting the cars coming out because I think it's valuable information to have. So why wouldn't they count the the trucks or cars to leave that factory? I think they have people counting cars at ports as well. And, and so um, I heard from someone who talked about the accountant. He was talking about loading times in August and loading times from the China factory were 40% higher in August compared to July. And, um, you know, that implied after we knew that local sales were around like you know, 10,000 or, or more that um, exports might have been like 35,000. Um, so it it ended up they did 44,000 and local sales were a bit higher. Exports exports were a bit lower. Um, you know, when you're extrapolating things, you, you have to be careful. Um, so, you know, I wasn't like betting my life savings on this or anything, but it was, it was just interesting to me. And so... <laughs> You know, looking forward at uh, Q3, Q3 delivery figures, um, we just we're hearing about the media being invited to attend the factory on the 29th of September that they'll make their three three hundred thousandth car uh, for the year in China. So that that means that they may produce about forty five thousand in September. So if mm. if you if you only assume, and this is this is just my opinion, do your own research. This is not investment advice. But if you only assume Fremont makes the same number of Model Three and Y, mm -hmm. and uh, Troy's projecting that they do eleven thousand six hundred Model S this quarter, and he's looking at like the New York State registrations. I, I don't know what else he's looking at, but I, I'm assuming maybe they do eight to ten thousand. So, you know, if, if those are the assumptions based and you look at what they did in July and August, then um, Tesla is going to produce about um, 240,000 cars this quarter, which is a, a significant beat. And um, I think where 007 is, is he's looking at, OK, well, Elon was talking at the end of Q2 about the significant um supply shortage in air airbag and seatbelt um com controllers that affected both mm -hmm. Fremont and Shanghai so um is it right 007 you're thinking Fremont could be higher by 10,000 or more than it was in Q2 so uh 
what we were surprised by in Q2 was how severely Fremont was off from our expectation. In, in Q1, our numbers on the aggregate for, uh, for Tesla were pretty much right on the money. Uh, but in Q2, we yeah. had a shortfall, and it turned out to have been entirely uh, from uh, from Fremont, and Shanghai came in right as we'd expected. So as we heard, Tesla was clearly, you know, sharing some of these challenges with us. Uh, but my view is that when they share a challenge, it means they've already started getting it under control. And I continue to think that their biggest challenge has been battery supply, not enough coming out of Nevada. Um, and mm -hmm. I'm aware that they have taken initiatives starting quite a few months ago to, to bring new batteries from China to the U.S. for the SR models uh, uh, using the uh, lithium phosphate uh, uh, battery cells from uh, CATL. And I'm mm -hmm. expecting that those will have started flowing into helping Fremont get back up to its regular production rates. And I'm assuming that mm -hmm. some of the supply chain challenges in other dimensions will have been mitigated because Tesla is not going to be sitting on its hands. So where I might expect uh, Fremont to do 125,000 in a normal quarter uh, and, uh, and Troy Tesla, for example, is looking at maybe closer to 105,000. I'm saying, well, I think, you know, we're not going to see a 20,000 unit shortfall. We're more likely to see perhaps a 10,000 unit shortfall and they could beat that. So my aggregate for uh, for the quarter as a whole, uh, when I take everything into account, which I've published on Twitter, uh, is actually around 250,000 with some potential downside, maybe a 5,000 down and maybe another 5,000 <laughs> on the upside. So that, uh, I think, is what Bradford is uh, sort of uh, referring to there. It's, it's very exciting that you've essentially made this approach to number of vehicles that's proven so accurate the last time around. And if we look at the assumptions, they're, they, they're difficult to disagree with. But with those figures in mind, you know, what, what would this represent? So we know you were pretty accurate the last time around. You've made some assumptions this time that seems fairly reasonable, and we get to a relatively high production rate. How does this sort of manifest itself in terms of, you know, return on investing capital for this? How, how do we interpret it, uh, the value of this, both long-term and short-term? First of all, long-term. Yeah, so I have these um, simple napkin mass way of looking at the gigafactories. And if, if we can know how much capital Tesla can deploy to grow their business, and this is a, a, an idea that comes from Meyer Thacker. He's at Fresh Jiva on Twitter. And he was just recently interviewed with Galley on HyperChange. Um, but this is an idea I've been looking at since May of 2019. So I, here's some interesting things about the, the Shanghai factory people may not know. And, you know, we can thank the bears for some of this information. I, I think they're, they're good at digging up information. <laughs> um, but like, they're very suspicious about the, the deals that Tesla got to get the Shanghai factory. And I, I think it's, yeah. there's a simple explanation for this. So, well, there, there, there has been question. What's Elon's greatest achievement? Is it the uh, is it the self landing <laughs> rockets? Is it the uh, approach to full self driving? Or is it actually to be able to set up a subsidiary in China without having to give away half the factories to the Chinese authorities? So, how yeah. how do we have any insight, or reflections, or thoughts on on how that could have gone about? Because it seems like a mystery. Because nobody else has been able to do it, and all the European OEMs have all had to give up uh, fifty percent of their companies. So, you know, people have their theories, but I think this, the simplest explanation is Tesla agreed, and, and the Tesla bears found this out, Tesla agreed to pay close to $350 million in tax to the Shanghai government um, starting about four or five years after the, the factory starts. So, you know, in this world where we have corporations dodging paying taxes and, you know, doing a double double Dutch or double Irish or whatever <laughs> to avoid paying taxes. Like Tesla's basically saying, we're going to give China a cut um, from this factory. And so I, mm. I think that's how they got a hundred percent ownership. And then the other, the other question is about 
these low interest rate loans that Tesla got to build the factory. And they, how, how would they have secured that? Uh, well, basically Tesla agreed to pay the first fruits um, back on the loans before they took money out of the country. Um, and that, mm. that's a, generally a way you protect, um, you know, international bonds. But uh, I, I think that's how they got that deal. And, um, you know, I, they could squeeze Tesla if they didn't pay those, those loans first. So I think that's how, how those came about. I don't think it's some sinister thing like Elon Musk is, you know, he's, he's an asset of the world. He's not a Chinese asset. <laughs> he's an asset of the whole world. And, um, oh. anyways, about the factory, um, you know, as Tesla bulls, we could see it being built. Like Wall Street didn't believe it. They at one point, Adam Jonas was saying like the most that Tesla would ever sell in China was seven seventy thousand vehicles. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. So I <laughs> I ended up doing some math on it, and at the time it was twenty nineteen, and Tesla I think they lost. Uh, close to a billion dollars that year. And I was like, okay, well, what if Tesla doesn't grow? You know, they lose a billion dollars a year or they slowly die, but you know, Tesla's going to grow. We know it. We're watching the videos. Okay. How, how much are they going to grow? Well, the, the factory, the highest number I saw in the media for phase one was 1.6 billion. So that's how much they put in. And the initial capacity of phase one, which, Tesla may have lied <laughs> on the low side. You know, they said it was 150,000. Mm. And you, you take that times the average selling price, which conservatively at the time was $40,000 US. So you get $6 billion a year in revenue. And, you know, Sandy Monroe basically said margins were going to be 30 in China, but I was just looking at 25% margins just to be conservative. And basically that means is the, you know, the amount of volume they do per year times the price times the profit um, is 1.6, I mean, 1.5 million in gross profit per year. So that, that compare, compare that to a one-time uh, cost of 1.6 billion. Um, essentially it's like very close to a hundred percent return on ca invested capital. And like, mm. if that's not leverage in a business, I don't know what is. And, <laughs> you know, now we know about yeah. Austin and Berlin and, you know, even though things cost less in China, the numbers are still very favorable in Berlin. And it turns out the numbers in China are even better. The, the capacity is, um, 250,000 for the model three. Um, and the gross margin is higher than 25% with localized parts. It's, it's higher than 30%. Um, so when you look at that with the higher capacity, the return on invested capital is over 160%. Now that doesn't re that, that number doesn't relate to gross margin. Like that doesn't mean gross margin should be a hundred percent. It doesn't mean that. No, I think we might just add some clarity. When we mean yeah. return on investing capital, we're essentially looking for a, the performance ratio that aims to sort of measure a percent return on invested capital. And it's essentially no plat over invested capital. So net operating profit over essentially capex or in investments into the factory. How much money do you get out for how much money you put in? So we are able to essentially yeah. improve that factor without adding more margin on the end product, are we not? Right. And, um, you know, obviously this doesn't include the cost for superchargers in China. This doesn't include the cost for Tesla centers, but the, the intention is for Tesla to run those at, um, no profit. So like, I'm not giving Tesla any credit for capital. They invest in those. Um, you know, obviously yeah. you need to take tax out of those numbers. So whenever you look at a, potential profit you need mm. to take tax out too but it's like that just mm. got me thinking about the leverage tesla has in this business and um when we look at giga berlin and i'll tweet out some of these numbers just so you can do the math but it's really sim it's really simple multiplication sure. um you have an an initial capacity of five hundred thousand. model y is probably going to be 
closer to 600,000. So I'm being conservative here. I'm looking at a 50,000 US dollar average selling price. It's higher than that right now. Um, Hmm. And just 25% Hmm. margin, despite it being model Y, despite, you know, having the front casting and, and uh, the new paint shop and all that. Um, so $7 billion is the highest cost I've seen in the media. I, I really doubt it's seven, but we're just being conservative here. So, so when you take all that capacity, mm-hmm. multiply it by you know, the revenue and then take the profit, that's $6.25 billion in um, incremental profit from a $7 billion investment, even in Europe, even with higher costs, and that's it's eighty nine percent return on invested capital. Um, that just blew my mind <laughs> when I did that's that. Insane. That's my pen tweet right now. Um, yes. So, and this is what I preach about. Appreciate about your analysis, Bradford, is because you know it's about you know analysis strength lies in its ability to self reflect over its own weaknesses. Right, you've taken out the supercharger costs, mm-hmm. whether it's this or the framework that JPR was mentioning initially you are still being conservative and still getting to these numbers, right? And that's, you know, when you extrapolate, you have to be yeah. conservative. But despite that, you're getting these figures. Yeah. So you, you look at long-term, and and um, Meyer Thacker did this with Galley. Um, you yes. look at you know, Tesla potentially making 20 million vehicles per year. Um, so if, if they're making $10,000 per car, and it costs about the same to build um, that car, that capacity for 20 million, you're looking at Tesla having to spend up to 200 billion on the car factories alone. But you know what that leads to in this simple math is potential profit of 200 billion per year in the future. Um, so you, obviously, again, you have to take profits out of that, and the, the profits will be different. Like you have the compact potentially coming. In, in a year or two um, and you know the the profit per car might be lower um, again this is being you know conservative but it's just one way to look at it um, and the the other thing is we also know 4680 is coming and um, you know that's something I, that's a problem I'm actually working on now and I actually want people's help with this um, so, excuse me, uh, give me a moment here. So you know, what I need to figure out is okay. how much it costs for Tesla to build 4680 capacity. And I want, what I'm wanting to figure out is how much money they spend per, per gigawatt hour of capacity. And the reason I mentioned this is I think there's a backdoor way to calculate this if we refer to battery day and then multiply that. Mm. Um, that savings that they mentioned in battery day times the cost that it, it, it either costs Panasonic today to build a new line or that it costs for Panasonic to build Giga Nevada. So if we could figure that out, if, if we can know how much it costs Tesla to build a gigawatt hour capacity, um, then we can know what it costs for them to build 100 gigawatt hours and, or even three yeah. terawatt hours. And we know that Tesla saves a lot on a per pack basis for 4680. Um, you know, right now on a nickel battery, um, they're spending maybe a little over $100 on a per pack basis. And Tesla's talking about, you know, by 2025, getting that down to $50. So we can figure out, okay, how much does Tesla save? This is like the return the return on the 4680 line, how much can they save? And then we can divide that by, you know, how much does that investment cost? And I suspect, Hmm. I don't don't know if this will prove true, but I I just go where the data is and I suspect this return on invested capital for 4680 lines is over 100%. Um, So, you know, those two things are going to drive the, the quote unquote Tesla as an automobile business, uh, those will drive the valuation for me in my mind. Um, but then you have all these, you know, other calls on it. 
so those are, those are my thoughts on return on invested capital. I'm curious, um, 007 um, or, or Alex or Sawyer, if you have any additional thoughts. Well, uh, so, like, go ahead. <laughs> so let me let me try and sort of just bring uh, what um, what Bradford has said into one sort of uh, one conclusion. As those who follow me know, uh, I look out to twenty thirty. Uh, I see I see mm-hmm. twenty five million vehicles. I see an average price of. 40,000 before taking into account inflation. So that's mix adjusted down from the current level, say 55,000, allowing for for cheaper vehicles and so forth. Uh, so 40,000 a vehicle at 25 million vehicles is a straight uh, $1,000 billion of revenue or one trillion if you like to use that number. And everything I see tells me that they're going to be able to run with 30% gross margins, uh, assuming that they're doing a significant amount of the battery production themselves. You know, it won't be 4680s, it'll be some some further generation by then uh, of the battery technology evolution, but 30% gross margin. So that means $300 billion of gross profit. And then I've tried to make as big a number as possible for R&D costs and overhead costs, but still I end up with an operating profit that's around 225 billion. Take out the tax that uh, that Bradford referred to generally around the world that they'll be paying tax, and I end up with net income of 180 billion dollars. Then you apply you know, a, a 20 times multiple or something like that, and... Um, which, one, which one are you roughly using? Are you under 20 or where are you? I'm, u- putting it. I'm using the 20 as what I call a seller's price. Uh, I use a 10 times for yes. a buyer's price, which is what where we're at at the moment. <laughs> but by my calculation, yes. we're around a 10 times multiple today. Um, but I use a 20 as a, as a seller's okay. price. And obviously, if you can get 30, then you're going to be very happy. But um, <laughs> but that that gives us, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a basic number. Now, if I look at that over time, right? Tesla is not going to be short of cash. They're generating cash today at a at a furious rate, and they're going to be generating it in the future even more so. So, so the issue of having the capital available to invest in in these capacities, uh, I don't see as being any kind of a problem. In fact, I think they're going to have the embarrassment of having too much cash relatively quickly, because well yes. run well run automobile yes. business can make a lot of cash. Okay, and it's the it's the stupid things that people do with it that make them either heavily indebted or unable to you know to generate decent shareholder profits. And I don't see either of those problems for uh, for Tesla. So that that is just sort of a quick nutshell calculation, um, and anybody can make their own adjustments to it. But I I think gross margin in the future is something that will be a management choice and not a market driven consideration they will they will price for the i only think they're doing it already i think we're seeing 30 percent we speak what Bradford has referred to in shanghai you know being diluted by uh, by perhaps less efficient operations in fremont and it's only going to get better so i think they can afford to maintain 30 percent margins even whilst bringing down the affordability of the vehicles as well as bringing down the mix of the vehicles because there's no reason you can't make 30% gross margin on a on a $25,000 vehicle if you've designed it properly. So that's just some some perspective. It's not the entire valuation that I give to Tesla because there's the whole uh, um, autonomous driving dimension as well, but uh, maybe it gives our audience some perspective of what sort of numbers we might be looking at in 2031. Absolutely. It's very exciting. I mean, we seldomly see this kind of return on investments. And we are doing this in a sort of non-traditional way at the sense. I feel it's almost like applying a PE type approach to evaluating a big company that's listed because you know, we're not really discussing discount rates and uh, bringing back a, a flow. We're, we're doing multiples approach. And at a very high level, it's really difficult to disagree with some of these figures. But well, to what comment does this on say? that, sure, to comment on that I, think, I think the traditional way of a P, applying a PE multiple to earnings is, is a very valid way of determining the value of a company 
when it uh, when it's reasonably mature. Uh, the problem with Tesla is you apply that to it today and you completely miss all the growth potential. So I took my projections yes. out until the growth potential appeared to become less than 15% per annum. Uh, so mm. around 2031 is where I see the, the trajectory of growth in the normal automobile business falling below that 15% per annum rate because they're, they're really big and they're getting to saturate the market. And at that point, my discount rate would make any future value become less in today's terms. So valuing it at some future mm. point and then uh, with a multi on a multiple basis is very simple really simple and the best thing to do with analysis is to try and make it as simple as possible and then i do discount that back to today to try and figure out okay what mm. would my shares in 2031 be worth uh mm. in in today's money at a 15 percent discount rate a lot of people think that you should apply lesser discount rates but i have a different viewpoint on that which we won't go into today i always, I always i've always used 15 percent, and i see no reasons to change um so if you, if you give yourself a lower discount rate you're going to make a lower profit i mean it's just the way it goes so uh, so that's uh, that's i think it's really a combination of classic well well proven multiple analysis together mm. with overlaying that then with a discount back to the present even though the, the future is 10 years and, and, and this is great perspective, and it's it's about applying different perspectives to different timelines at different phases of a company's growth, because this is still, by all means, a growth company. But how would this kind of level of return on investment be different, let's say, from Tesla to, uh, I think Maya touched upon it over the gallery, to Ferrari? If we can get this kind of return on capital, the question is only scalability. And essentially, you know, how far could we push it? So can't scale Ferrari. Therefore, you might as well value them <laughs> on a current basis, right? There's, there's, no, there's no growth to talk about. Yes. To be honest, if you look at it, you can't scale VW either. Their revenue base has been flat for the last uh, 10 years outside of the quite separate Chinese operations. So, uh, mm. uh, you know, a, a typical current legacy OEM has the problem that they can't really talk a growth story. They have to shrink their ice business and they have to grow their no. bev business. And if they're lucky, if they're really lucky, the two numbers will end up being the same 10 years apart. Um, so so they're challenged by that unless they can find a way to, you know, to truly drive a growth engine into their business. Whereas Tesla, uh, doesn't have that problem. It's all about growth. You know, there's no point trying to value it based on what it's doing today. It's about the fact that for every, you know, every reasonable consideration, they're going to be lots and lots bigger in the future. I've used their 50% growth rate for my near-term estimate, but even I've tapered that off as mm. the market, you know, as they grow up towards the, uh, I think it's about 2027 when I start reducing that growth rate because, you know, the S-curve of penetration would uh, would otherwise make them more than 20% market share. Just a question out of curiosity. You know, what's the global tax rate you've applied? Because the reason I ask is we've seen the current administration has been fencing and, and championing for a global tax rate that's got regulators here in Europe quite excited. Uh, can I ask sort of what level of tax rates you're putting in the global perspectives in, let's say, 2030? So, so when I first did this analysis, it was two years ago, and the basic U.S. Mm. tax rate was 20%. So I applied mm. 20%, and I have not changed it. Now, we could argue that today it might be 21% in the U.S., but we can also argue that if you look at Apple or some other global company who manages their taxes worldwide, mm. the actual tax rate is somewhat lower. So I've taken a very plain vanilla mm. approach to that. And of course, that could that tax rate could be better, in fact. Uh, it could be worse, mm. in fact. But I think the middle course that I've taken is reasonable. However, the tax amount is only $45 billion only he says <laughs> only 45 billion <laughs> um, it, it doesn't you know it's it, it doesn't change the answer within the era of estimate you know i'm not trying to pretend that i can tell what the future is better than 10 percent, right and and if we change the tax rate it's it it has less impact than all the other uncertainties that we might consider 
<laughs> well, this does paint a quite an exciting picture for the future. And it's, you know, if you look at the data, like Bradford is suggesting, it, it's hard to disagree. If anything, it is shocking. And the question is, is it as scalable as we suggest it is? I think it's quite interesting if you listen to the different perspectives, because there's so many ways of evaluating, and this is one of them, but it's proven to be relatively accurate recently, at least. And the fundamentals... Can we... Hey, Adam. Sorry? Can, could we have Alex or Sawyer um, get, get into a little bit about, you know, how hard Tesla's pushing on the engineering side? Because, like, I think where some might get uncomfortable is like, okay, are they still going to make the same margins on a compact? You know, that kind of thing. Sure. Uh, so maybe sure. Alex, Alex and Sawyer can weigh in. Yeah. So, so I can't get into like too many details, uh, but this has been like confirmed. Uh, it's very reliable information. Uh, for example, recently um, Tesla was using in a certain process, which is rather critical to the manufacturing of an of a battery electric vehicle, an in-house third party, and they recently got rid of them and are actually doing them itself themselves, Tesla. And the numbers are pretty amazing. So the, the cost reductions on this process is roughly around 50%. And the cost of uh, failure of this process has decreased by a factor of 10. And this has been this new process made like by Tesla is uh, it reduces CapEx, it reduces time and um it's been recently implemented, very recently implemented in Shanghai and will be implemented in Berlin and Giga Texas uh, in Q4. That is about what I can say. And, and we've been seeing this, that Tesla does this uh, everywhere. So they're basically uh, vertically integrating everything in the manufacturing and making it better than what third parties could do for them in-house. So, like, I'm very when I hear that the the margins are gonna get better or stay the same on lower model, uh, lower cost models like compacts, I'm I'm very confident that this can be achieved. Yeah, I would agree, and it's cool to see, you know, some of the the cost reduction figures that Tesla had stated on on Battery Day sort of starting to play out in, in real time. Um, based on what Alex and I had seen. So it's not just, you know, ideas that Tesla had. We're, we're actually seeing direct evidence of, of these things taking place right now. So it's quite exciting. And, and then savings in general would just be in incredible. And look, uh, you know, in, in, in the process of making a battery electric car, uh, a, lot of the, uh, a lot of the cost is, um, you know, pretty much uh, commodity stuff, making panels and making frames and putting wheels on it and so on. But Tesla has shown us that they have been driving the technology really hard in the electric motors. Their electric motors stand out far better than anybody else's. But they have recently, with the Model S Plaid, taken that, you know, a whole nother league ahead uh, with this carbon fiber wrapping around the motor to stop it sort of blowing itself apart. So I'm sure that not only are they targeting uh, motor improvements and targeting battery improvement, targeting some of the other very critical electronic components that go into an electric car, like the inverter, you know, which is a big cost, a high cost item. Uh, and uh, I'm sure the manufacturing processes for making those have rates as do making batteries. Batteries have a 25% yield loss uh, on uh, relative to capacity, as we've seen from Panasonic. So attacking these areas that have not necessarily seen the light of day in the past, uh, they're just finding opportunities to bring the costs down significantly. It's not just about, you know, can we make cheaper cells? It's about can we make cheaper packs? It's about can we make better motors at a lower cost? And can we make some of these other electronic components that are going to be so critical in the future? And I'm still waiting for another wonderful innovation that Tesla has teased us with, which is the whole wiring harness area. Uh, yeah. Once you solve the wiring harness, uh, you know, you can put a, put, a, put a vehicle together more like a Lego than, than the processes that are used today. <laughs> 
this is quite interesting and will be exciting to follow in the future. Um, I was thinking, perfect. maybe we could try to sort of get to where this leads us today, because I know we're all excited about Tesla in the long-term perspective, and it's definitely an interesting one for the long-term perspectives. But how does this sort of mount up to a EPS this time around? How would we suggest that Wall Street is missing this and that there is up to a dollar's upside to the EPS estimate? Yeah, so um, Matt Smith turned this turned me on to this. He tweeted this out September 14th. And what he tweeted was that in Q2, Tesla did a $1.45 per share. And I, I believe this is on an adjusted basis. And uh, Wall Street was under a dollar mm-hmm. at that time. But what's interesting is that we we know that we're like 99% sure <laughs> that Q3 is going to be better than Q2. And we'll get into why in a second, but for whatever reason, Wall Street, as of you know September fourteenth, and it's it's ticked up a little bit since, but they were at one thirty seven mm-hmm. a share. Like they were predicting for whatever reason that uh, Q Q three would be worse. Um, so they're just kind of like tracking what Tesla did last quarter. They're not really thinking about anything, which really surprised me. So. Um, you know, with the work I'm doing with JPR and, you know, what we hearing about China, it, it seems like they're going to do, you know, around 30,000 or more, um, cars in Q3 versus Q2. So, uh, we also know that Tesla makes about 10,000 a car. So just really simple math. You take 30,000 times $10,000. That's an extra, 300 million in profit. Um, that that's just one factor. So then, then we look at um, the price increases. Um, so the the price increases happened late enough in the second quarter for Model Three and Y, and this was in Europe and the U.S. That it really wasn't reflected in what Tesla was able to do in Q2. So a lot of reservations happened especially in Europe, you know, way before they're delivered. So, you know, price price increases really didn't come through. So in, in this quarter, we may have about 50,000 um, delivered to Europe. It may be more. Uh, and um, 100,000, three and Y, um, sold in the U.S. Um, from Fremont. Um, you know, maybe more than that. But just with an average price increase of about three thousand dollars, maybe. Yeah, the the price increase was three thousand dollars, and you just multiply one hundred fifty thousand times three thousand dollars, you come up with another four hundred fifty million dollars. And like these numbers are big, and they it scares me. <laughs> um, like I, I have the chance to be like very very wrong. And that's okay, but it's just like I'm I'm looking at these numbers, and I just have a hard time. Like uh, people aren't aren't seeing this, and uh, and that's okay. I mean, you know, Tesla has higher costs potentially this quarter. Um, you know, the the controllers uh, may be costing them more. They might be paying more in raw materials because um, the economy's been hot. So you know, maybe it's not quite as good. But then we also have Model S. Like Model S, we didn't benefit much from in in Q two. And um, Troy Tesla-like, he he does good, and he's been very accurate in the U.S. Um, He's forecasting about 11,600 Model S um, sold in the U.S. for Q3. So just looking at 10,000, and and what I did was I assume, okay, maybe conservatively half of those are long range, and we'll say they make 30,000 on the long range. Um, you know, they sell them for about a hundred thousand and I have a hard time thinking it costs more than 70 grand to make them. And then on the plaid, they're, they're making about 50,000. I'm just assuming they make, they cost more and cost significantly more, but that they're still making 50,000. So when you average those out, they're making about 40,000 per model S 
um, just the, I'm just guessing here. <laughs> so the, this is the most speculative yeah. piece of, of this dollar B. Um, so when you take 10,000 Model S, you multiply by 40,000 per. You, That's 400 million. You come out, yep, 400 million. And um, when you add up these three factors, that's 1.15 billion in potential additional upside. And, and that comes out on a fully diluted basis to a full dollar higher than what Tesla did. Um, and that's, that's like a huge, enormous beat. And that, that sounds like, it sounds crazy to me. If, if it actually happened, like I would, I would have to like lay down for 24 hours. Like <laughs> I'd just be in shock. Um, like we, we all know this is exponential. We all know that Tesla's driving down costs. We all know that their their order book extends out forever. And there's no inventory. Um, we all see this coming, uh, but it's still it's still shocking to me. Um, and there and there's more. There's there's a fourth factor. Is um, mm. there's a a big pricing difference between Europe and China. And Tesla in Q2 delivered about 36,000 Model 3 to Europe. Now, I'm not sure if this, I'm not sure about this factor. I don't know if it's additional or not. I think it is. So, you know, they're delivering 15,000 more cars to Europe. And the, the price difference between Europe and China, Adam and I, I think you and I were talking about this before the show, you know, Maybe it's about eight thousand or ten thousand um, dollars for a Model Three and Y. You take that times fifteen thousand more exports to Europe, and that's another hundred fifty million. And it's just like uh, it's crazy to me. Like even if you discount, you know, all this by one hundred fifty million or three hundred million, you you still have a a huge beat. Um, you know, we're not talking about credits. We're not talking about um, if they do, if they recognize their tax benefit. Uh, we're not talking about deferred FSD, which uh, Tesla may see a benefit from that in f fourth quarter. Um, we're not talking about any of that. We're just talking about cars. We're talking about cars. <laughs> Well, you know what, Bradford, it's a very exciting analysis, and I think the work that both uh, you have done and also uh, JPR with the framework is very relevant. I think we need to bear in mind, Wall Street was off by 55% just last quarter, right? Wall Street missed the mark completely on this, and um, it's always interesting to hear some of your thoughts. Um, would you guys be open for taking some questions Adam, and answers? Sorry, go ahead, uh, uh, JPR. Adam, one last, one last comment I'd like to make, sure. which is that um, the, the two costs that Tesla incurs below the line after the gross mm -hmm. margin uh, are R&D and the whole sort of selling general administrative overhead type of costs. What I yeah. have always been impressed by over the last, I guess, three years now is how well Tesla controls those costs. They have basically manage them as though they were fixed costs, even though the business has grown dramatically over the last three years. So I'm mm. expecting that, you know, even whilst we're seeing volume increases, revenue increases, gross profit increases, that Tesla mm. will be holding the line pretty much on the R&D and the overhead costs. And that means that, uh, you know, the, all the goodness flows basically straight to the bottom line. I think we saw that last quarter. I think we saw that in yes, the previous spot on. quarter. Spot on. I yes. think we've been seeing that now basically since they started making any kind of net income uh, that uh, that is really a straight flow through right past those costs. And frankly, comparing them to their counterparts in the legacy OEM business who seem to waste an awful lot of money there, Tesla deserves mm. some credit for how well they control that and of course, we can give that credit where. Yes, but on, forgive me for not remembering the figure at the top of my head, but I believe the SGA, SGA percentage to revenue was lower in Q2 than it was in Q1, despite increased volumes. So I think your argument. Yeah, I tend, to, I, tend, I tend to look at it as a straight number each quarter. 
And I, again, yeah. I can't remember the number specifically. It might be a billion dollars in, in the aggregate between R&D and SG&A, but uh, whatever that yes. number is, that number stays mm. fixed mm. and the revenues just keep mm. going up. I mean, it's just beautiful. It's, it's, a, it's a symphony. Mm. <laughs> yes. I think some of our panel might have some questions. And if you guys are up for it, we'll make, maybe take some from the audience as well. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I'll pose this question to both Bradford and JPR. Um, and I think it's just something the Tesla community would you know, love to hear from you guys. Of um, Looking out to around 2030, I've seen some people say that Tesla should never pay dividends, or that it makes no sense. And I, and I would love to get your thoughts on this because I'm of the opinion that if Tesla is generating you know, hundreds of billions in potential profits by you know, around 2030, you can't just throw all that back into R&D and, and, and reinvestment into the company. It, it's just too high a sum, in my opinion. And at some point, there has to be some level of diminishing returns, right? So I'd love to get both of your thoughts on this. Yeah, at a certain point, it it, it um, if things play out as kind of we imagine, this is not investment advice and do your own research, um, invest at your own risk, but uh, they're gonna have a very hard time investing that in the business. Um, so there's five things people can do with cash. Um, dividends, one thing. They can buy back stock. They can reinvest in the business. Um, I'm forgetting the other two, but uh, it, I think you know they could also do buybacks. That, that can be a little more shareholder friendly. Um, Apple's doing a mix of the two. Um, and going back to JPR's multiples, at one point mm -hmm. Apple got down to a ten. PE. I think this was in maybe 2011 or 2013 when you had the the fear of the the phones getting on fire. Now it's above a 20 PE. Um, so yeah, maybe these maybe the Tesla also pays a dividend just so Elon has money to uh, spend on going to Mars or something else. So uh, let me add to uh, to Bradford's perspective. I've looked at this quite a number of different ways, and uh, I've also sort of put out on Twitter a, uh, a sort of what a dividend model might look like. Going back to mm -hmm. going back to Apple, uh, Apple was a growth company way back, uh, but today it's only growing at around seven percent if they're lucky. So it's no longer a growth company; it's a very mature company, and uh, and therefore represents a very conservative picture of what Tesla might look like in 2031. In 2031, Tesla would have organic growth around about 15%, as best I can tell, quite possibly more when we you know, take into account things that we haven't any knowledge of today. But, um, uh, but Apple has been trading in the range of 30 to 40 times multiple. So a 20 times multiple expectation from our side in 2031 is is, is potentially half of what it might really be. <laughs> now, fair disclaimer, I'm not a big fan of dividends because you send that money to your shareholders without them having asked for it, and they have to pay taxes on it. So Apple pays out a small part of their excess cash through dividends at, I think it's a 30% payout rate, but it's really a small part of the cash that they're using up. The big part is how they do the share buybacks. And as I look at what Tesla might do once they start to have this excess of cash, this embarrassment of riches, is I see the potential to buy shares back uh, rather than by rather than issuing dividends. Uh, and buying buying shares back means that no shareholder has to do anything that they don't want to, right? Because those shares are just bought out in the market. And so the shareholders who stay in become part of a shrinking pool of shareholders and therefore their value per share goes up. I've assumed that Tesla will continue diluting its share base by a couple of percent per year for various obvious reasons. But if they were to reverse that, then the per share value in 2031 would be way higher potentially than anything that we've projected so far because the the total value of the company doesn't change but the the number of shares that it's spread over and if i was elon musk i would be looking at that and saying yeah that doesn't force me to sell any of my shares and yet my proportionate share of the company goes up and those shares become more valuable and if i 
do wish to cash them in and pay a vast amount of tax on them so that I can channel that the, the remaining cash into SpaceX or into going to Mars in any other form, then obviously, uh, you know, he's doing it at a better price than, than otherwise. So I think uh, whilst we have to expect that Tesla is going to have too much cash, as Bradford says, there are a number of ways that you can use that, including acquiring other companies that have, you know, attractive technology or whatever. Although, frankly, you know, acquiring them with shares today seems to make more sense. But um, I think that there are businesses hiding inside Tesla that we haven't yet, you know, given any credit to. And if they're going to start making robots and if those robots are going to be part of the mission to Mars because it's easier to send, you know, inanimate objects there rather than uh, rather than human beings, um, you can imagine the scale of a robot business applied on a world basis and on an extraplanetary basis could be quite interesting. And if it's profitable, it would be a very attractive use of excess cash whilst furthering you know, the stated mission that Elon is passionate about. Yes, it's possible the robots might be um, relatively inexpensive to make, but if they're economically valuable and useful, that'll take a lot of research. And while they're really good, um, on the vision side, um, it just may take more. Um, so, yeah, I think that's another use for cash. And I, I think that's, it's a, you know, them introducing these other areas is a, a great way to keep town at Tesla. Like if, if they ever figure out autonomous driving, they don't, they don't want to lose all that brain power. Um, if people get bored and, you know, they're on project vacation as far as, you know, not needing to, be involved in the autonomous driving. So um, I think there'll be more uses for cash. Um, and it's, it's possible like if Tesla runs their own fleet of cars, that's a big use of cash. They're not, you know, they wouldn't be getting revenues for that car immediately. Um, they get be getting a smaller per mile revenue if they would run their own fleet, but then eventually they got too much cash. <laughs> Good problem to have. Just in terms, just in terms of R&D, uh, you should bear in mind that the R&D amount that I've provided for in 2031 is 50 billion dollars. Now that is uh, much larger than any other automaker is spending in today's world, uh, and uh, and yet it's only five percent of revenues, which uh, and a very reasonable number to have as an R&D budget. So there's plenty of R&D spending already built into these numbers for, uh, you know, for, for bona fide R&D. But as, uh, as Bradford says, you know, there are, there are many other, way, other ways that you need to uh, deploy this money for capital purposes. If you're going to develop good robots and then replace human beings in your factories with those robots, uh, then you might a lot of robots, even if you've learned how to make them very economically. Right. Exciting. Thank you. Uh, if anybody in the audience has some questions, feel free to call in. I will bring you up on stage. Uh, the word is yours, uh, Jessica. Yeah, I have one last question for Bradford. <clears throat> uh, maybe just first of all to clarify something you said, like you expect like a dollar EPS higher than Wall Street currently <clears throat> projects. So that would be two dollar forty ish, right? Yeah, I think it. I, I think it could be two sixty. Um, you know, you know, without this, without the um, the added fifteen thousand going to Europe, and then you know maybe it could be two seventy five. I don't know how taxes play in. And again, these are it's like such a big surprise and shock. Like I don't I don't believe it myself. So even if they came close, like um, I would be hugely surprised by <laughs> okay we are actually planning to to host another room during the earnings release would you be interested in uh, joining us so in, in case you hit it right on the head that we could <laughs> catch your reaction that would be super hilarious yeah that's cool uh, as long as i'm allowed to both drink and lay down at the same time Yes. Deal. <laughs> All right, we're rounding off the hour. That was the last question, I think, and a great suggestion by Jessica. 
I think it's in a place to say thank you very much to uh, JPR. It's been a pleasure meeting you. And Bradford, thank you so much for being here with us, sharing your models to both of you. It's always nice when we have um, yeah, esteemed members of the Tesla Twitter community coming here and sharing their thoughts. Appreciate your time. Thank you very much. And uh, yeah, great talking to you guys. Cheers. Cheers. Feel free to ask Thanks us questions on Twitter. Thank you, guys. All right. We're closing the room in three, two, one.